All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Josiah, and thank you for being here today. Uh, I'm serving as a youth pastor for Harvest Church, and I'm excited, honored, and humbled to share God's word with us this morning and throughout the month of March as we go into the book of Jonah. And as, I was, as we were worshiping just now, I think I was really struck by God, um, just that this is an opportunity for me to share the gospel, to share Christ crucified. Um, to share his love for us. And so I, I don't want to take this lightly. Um, I want to share in a way that doesn't demonstrate any su- superior knowledge to you all, but we're all on the same playing field, the same um, platform, and um, I am in just so much in need of this message too. So um, today's sermon is, is going to be on the first chapter of Jonah as we go into four weeks of this book of, of the Minor Prophet. And um, today is going to be a lot pretty technical, um, and, and that's because the book is very technical. A book of only 48 verses has actually so much depth to it um, and richness to it in the technicalities. But if we, if we kind of ignore those things and push it aside, we actually lose the richness of who God is and his character. So um, in this sermon series, um, the first uh, message, or the title for this today's message is the downward spiral from God's mercy and three signs that we see how we can be wayward in our, in our falling away from God and running away from God. So how many of us here are familiar with the story of Jonah, just by a raise of hands? A lot of us, most of us are. And if you've grown up in church, uh, this is something that we're familiar with because largely Jonah we, re- we reference to um, in his connection with the whale. But in actuality, with the book of Jonah, um, the great fish appears only in two verses of the 48 verses of this book. And so what we can see is that Jonah is not primarily about a whale or a fish or the miraculous nature of that. Rather, the book reveals the nature of who God is and his compassion. It's rich in its theology and its narrative, and it reveals God's purpose and pleasure in loving all people, not just believers. Um, There's a lot more that we can go into about debating if this is fiction or if it's history, um, about how to find pointers about reading through the book of Jonah. And so um, there are a lot of things that I want to give helpful pointers to you, um, but for the sake of time for our message that we can focus solely on what God's giving to us in Jonah 1, uh, I'm going to share that information later in an email throughout the week. Um, But I would love to invite you all as a church to read through the book of Jonah at some point this week. It probably only takes about 20 minutes, um, so it's a quick read. But let me give you a quick rundown of the, of the story of Jonah. God gives a calling to the prophet Jonah, um, who is a man of God, to go on assignment to the city of Nineveh, which is Israel's mortal nemesis in a very sadistic and cruel nation. And so it's a message of repentance that, is, that Jonah needs to share with them. But instead of obeying God, Jonah actually runs in the opposite direction, boards a ship with these pagan sailors, and in that time, God throws a storm at them to make the storm cease. Jonah is thrown overboard into the ocean, uh, into the sea, and then he's swallowed by a fish, where in the fish, in the belly of the fish for three days, he stays there, and he offers a prayer of thanksgiving to God. He's then vomited subsequently, where God gives him a second chance to give the message to Nineveh, who needs to desperately hear a message of repentance. And he does so kind of begrudgingly, and he gives and he shares a very, very terse message upon which the entire city of Nineveh repents in a miraculous fashion. And Jonah, seeing this in chapter 4, at the very end of Jonah, is actually very, very upset and frustrated that God would actually do 
what he promised to do, that he followed through on his word and his mercy. And so we're left with a conclusion that's unresolved, where God asks this question. So um, to summarize this book in four chapters, there are four phrases which Pastor Deal shared with me. Um, it's pretty fun. It's chapter one says, I won't go. Chapter two says, okay, I'll go. Chapter three says, here I am. And chapter four says, I shouldn't have come. Or the, another way to put it is chapter one is about the prodigal prophet. Chapter two is about the praying prophet. Chapter three is about the preaching prophet. And chapter four is about the pouting prophet. Um, but what's the central theme to Jonah? And um, when we see God's, the theme to Jonah, we see that at the main part of it, it's not about the need for repentance for a great city. It's not about a silly prophet in this way. It's not even about racism or nationalism or missions. Even though these are themes that come up, the main theme that we see in the book of Jonah centers around God's great compassion and mercy for people like the Ninevites, for people like the sailors, and then for people like Jonah, for you and me. Um, the book of Jonah is didactic. And what that means is that it impresses upon us and it asks questions. There are 13 questions throughout the book of Jonah that really want to get to how does this relate to you. And so in Jewish history, so after this book was written, there is a special day called the Day of Atonement. And this is a day where the entire nation of Israel would gather together and they would ask God to forgive their sins as a collective whole. And in that day, the, word, the book of Jonah would be read to everyone. And after the book was read, the people would cry out in unison, we are Jonah. And that's what the author is trying to get us to do today. Is he wants to see, hey, all of us here, even 2,000, 3,000 years later, after these events, we are Jonah. And I hope that my hope for us in this four-week series is that to see that the book is aimed at us, meaning to expose the worst tendencies and forms inside God's covenant people, inside you and I, that we are prideful, we're hard-hearted, we're racist, we're bitter, we're hateful, we're full of anger and disgust, and we're disobedient to God. But my hope for Jonah is not only to see the negative sides that it elicits from us, but to see the positive worth of Christ, that it can deepen our relationship to Christ, to understand his immeasurable compassion for us, and to learn that our relationships with others are meant to reflect and mirror God's compassion for all people. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. Um, and that comes in the Old Testament towards the latter half. Uh, it's one of the minor prophets. Um, uh, and it's before Micah, after Obadiah. It's after like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Um, and the words will be on the screen too. But I'm going to read for us the first chapter, at least up till verse 16, um, to see... And we'll see where God's word leads us today. So verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found the ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship 
and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, the sailors, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry lands. Then the sailors were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. How are you and I like Jonah? How do we espouse his negative and disobedient and fugitive-like tendencies and attitudes? I may not know you all well, but what I do know is something that's universal to the human condition, that you and I, all of us, we have a deep propensity and a tendency and a bent to resist the leadership and authority of God. We pursue life by running away from the very source of life itself. And that's what scripture calls as sin. When we pursue what we think is best, it's contrary to God's desires, we fall into his downward spiral. And that's what we see in chapter one of Jonah. Jonah reflects our insanity of running away from God. But Jonah one also reflects God's insane kindness in pursuing us because just like you and i have a big tendency to run from god god has a bigger tendency to pursue us to the very end and to not give up so um, the author of jonah portrays this downward spiral through this verb in hebrew called yarad what it means it means to go down and you see it several times in chapter one there's a continual repetition and action of Jonah descending deeper and deeper into the depths, like physically and geographically. And so first, we see Jonah yadads. He goes down from his hometown, Gath Hefer, to Joppa, and then yadads into the ship. He yadads to the bottom of the ship where he falls asleep, and yadads further when he lays down to sleep. Then after all the storm and the oldest events ensue, he's hurled into the sea, and he yadads deeper into the sea where a fish swallows him. In chapter 2, we'll see that the fish takes him deeper, yadads, to the bottom of the sea, to the depths of the ocean. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for yadad is so often prepared in the book of Psalms with going down to the depths of the dead. And so what the author is trying to make a connection is that as Jonah descends deeper in his downward spiral, he's actually going to his death. And that's what we see with our lives too. We have a downward spiral if, we're not, if God does not intervene. So three thoughts for us this morning. Um, the first thought is down to Joppa. And this represents that one of the ways that we can tell and it's symptomatic of our waywardness from God 
is that we run from God's word. We run from God's word and his calling. So Jonah 1, 1 through 3 is where we see this from and derive this from. When we see the main characters, there's God and there's Jonah. And there's a conflict between the two. And actually the main character of the story is God. It's not Jonah. God is mentioned 42 times in the book of Jonah. But Jonah and Nineveh combined for only 27. And so God is clearly the protagonist. God desires for Jonah to go to Nineveh. And there's a conflict between their desires and also conflict between God and Nineveh. And what's interesting about Jonah, if we focus on Jonah, his name is also a common noun for dove. And we see in Hosea 11, 7, or 7, 11, we see that um, God describes the dove of Israel as silly and senseless. And so we can infer that we see that Jonah is in the same way. He's seen as silly and senseless and throughout the whole book. He's inconsistent in this way. But he's also the son of Amittai. And mit in Hebrew means reliable. It means trustworthy. It means faithful. It means consistent and dependable. But what's ironic, and this is what's supposed to make the Hebrew audience chuckle with, the, with so much, it's like this book is dripping with irony, is that though Jonah is described in this way as faithful, he's actually not. He's actually a senseless little guy whom God is faithful to. So Jonah is a real character. He was alive in 2 Kings 14.25 when he's a prophet for King Jeroboam II. So he's alive in this time of Israel when Israel as a nation is split into two kingdoms with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And he's prophesying to a king who's not a good guy in a time of great um, material prosperity but also moral degradation and corruption. And so in Jonah 1-2, we see the command. God calls him and says, arise and go. And these two successive Hebrew verbs are, are there portray a sense of urgency. Like God's saying, like, you must go immediately. Go immediately to Nineveh, which is today modern-day Mosul in Iraq. Nineveh is, would become later the capital of Assyria. And Assyria is the most, later becomes the most strongest and the most dominant force in the ancient Near East. Nineveh is described as a great city in verse 2 because of its population and its size and definitely because of its power. But later in chapter 3, we see that God says it's great because it greatly matters to him. Jonah's mission is to call out against the city for their evil, uh, which is Ra in Hebrew. But it also has a play on words because Ra also means trouble. And so God is saying, hey, this, this nation needs to hear about their wickedness, but they also need to hear about the trouble that they're in, that there is an imminent judgment that's coming to them. But what Jonah does is quite shocking because all of God's prophets throughout Scripture obey God and they obey him well. But Jonah is the only one who does the opposite. He runs from God. And that begs the question, like, why does Jonah run? Well, first we see that this shocked Jonah for several reasons. One, when when God gave a message to his prophets, the prophets were giving a message primarily to Israel or to Judah, to God's covenant people. And sometimes they would talk about other nations, and that was usually within their safe confines of their own kingdom. So it's like dogs barking at their dog across the street, but then when you lower the fence, they're like, oh, I'm not going to say anything, because they're within the confines of security. And Jonah's like that. But now he's sent almost on a suicide mission to go into the heart of the most evil and cruel empire at the time to share a message that they're going to be destroyed. And the second thing we see is that the Assyrians were very brutal and cruel people. And so if you have seen the, um, the VeggieTale movie of Jonah, 
um, they portray it a little bit differently. I watched it again this past week because I had to for the sermon. Um, but the book of Jonah, and the VeggieTale movie of Jonah, um, because it's a kid's movie, they can't show that the students are really cruel people. And they do it because they show that they're fish slappers. So they just like have fish and slap each other all day with fish. And that, to them, warrants God's wrath, right? On a more serious note, and this is a lot more heavy, is that the depictions of the murals of Assyria that we see um, are actually very, very gruesome. Assyria as a nation were almost devoid of any compassion for people. It's one thing to kill and wipe out people, but it's another to enjoy the torture of it. What they would do is when they would kill and attack soldiers, they would dismember them and cut off their limbs, leaving one hand so they can shake their hand as they were dying. They would then decapitate the soldiers and allow the children, force the children, to carry the heads of their fathers as they paraded down the streets. They would then skin the leaders alive, display their skins on the walls, and then burn the children who had been praying down alive. This, the slaves that they would take, they would take in single file all the way back to Assyria, to their, to their city, to be slaves there forever. And they would insert hooks into their jaws so that if one person tried to run away or they fell out of exhaustion, then the rest of the slaves in that line would, who were connected through that line would come to Nineveh without a jaw. These were like the most cruel people that you can imagine. And so it's no doubt, and we can empathize with Jonah, like there's no way any of us here in our right minds, one, would want to go to Nineveh, but two, to think that God has mercy upon them or desires to save them. And we see the real reason why Jonah doesn't want to go. The main reason why Jonah resisted the call is later revealed in chapter 4 because he knows if God is giving a warning to Nineveh, that means that there's a possibility that judgment can be averted. And there's a, there's a possibility that God will show mercy. And what Jonah thought was that this mission and this, this message was neither practical nor did it make theological sense in his own framework. If God would show mercy, he could not make sense of it. And anytime we see God move slowly in Scripture, anytime we see God not give his wrath immediately out, because God could have like, struck Nineveh down with lightning right away or, or fire and brimstone. But what he does is he sends a little man to give a message. And anytime my professor, Dr. Reed, says this, anytime that God moves slowly in Scripture, it's because of his compassion. It's because he doesn't want to pour out his wrath upon all people. But Jonah would rather run away from God. He would rather run from God than allow and give a message and an opportunity for God's enemies to hear and receive God's mercy. So Jonah runs, called to go east, he goes west. Directed to travel over land, he goes by sea. And sent to one of the biggest cities, he goes to the very end of the earth, edge of the earth, known earth of Tarshish. And what we see um, is something called, in verse 3, a chiasm. A chiasm is like a, a descending staircase in the verse, um, and it's almost like a hamburger in a way, where the, the middle part of it reveals a meat to what this verse is, or the section. So he goes, he flees from Tarshish before the Lord, he comes down to Joppa, he finds a ship, which is going to Tarshish. He paid its fare, and this is a parallel structure. He went down into it to go to Tarshish before the Lord. So what this reveals is it at the bookends of it, and in the middle, it talks about Tarshish. And what that is supposed to elicit in the reader and the hearer is that this is a radical departure of Jonah from where he's supposed to go. Like, three times it says Tarshish, and that's not Nineveh. That's not even remotely close to That's not even how he spell it. But Jonah had a problem with the calling. He had a problem with the calling, but it, it reveals 
it's not the calling that was the issue. Jonah had a problem with the caller. He concluded that if he could not see any good reason for God's mercy, then there couldn't be any. And Jonah doubted God's goodness and purpose and sense of justice and mercy. Does God know best or does Jonah? And the default mode for you and I, for the human heart, we're just like Jonah in this way, that we cannot trust that God is committed to our good. But the truth is, is that the heart of the Father and every inclination of the Father is for our good. Tim Keller says that sin always begins with the character assassination of God. We trust God too little because we trust ourselves too much. So Jonah wanted a God of his own making. He wanted a God who could smite his enemies and bless himself and his people. When the real God and not the counterfeit God keeps showing up in the story, Jonah's incredulous. It shakes his world. God becomes an enigma to him because he cannot reconcile the God and the mercy and his mercy and the justice that he wants. How, Jonah asks, can God be merciful and forgiving to a people who didn't deserve an ounce of love and compassion, who have done such violence and evil in this world? Jonah reveals that our God is a God who is not limited by our expectations or by our limitations of who, what we say he is. Um, in a positive example of calling, I grew up on the mission field uh, in Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan for 10 years as a missionary kid and as a pastor's kid. And there's a story of an Uzbek Christian who becomes a believer. He's a new believer, and he's really excited to share his faith. He's passionate. He's zealous for, to share the gospel. And as he's going to church and he's praying and he's hearing God's word, the Lord impresses upon him a name to reach out to an acquaintance who lives in the village two hours away. So this man, whose name is Timur, uh, which we'll say for the sake of protecting his identity in a persecuted nation, Timur is like, you know what, I'll go. Two hours, not bad. So he makes a trip out, and the Uzbek people are very warm and hospitable people. So his acquaintance welcomes him in with open arms. They prepare a lavish feast, and Timur is enjoying this time, and then he drops the bomb. He says to his friend, I've left the Islamic faith, and I've become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Muslim world, um, and what it says in the Quran is that to become an apostate, to leave Islam itself, and to deny and reject that religion is punishable by death. And that happens in countries today. And so his friend, having that same attitude towards apostasy, um, is deeply offended. And he says, like, I do not condone this in any way. I don't want you to be Christian, and I definitely don't want you to try to convert me again. So it's a very, very cold um, closing of the door. Timur returns back to his home. He goes to church for the next few weeks, and he's like, well, I did my job, and he rejected it, so we'll see how it goes. But God and the Holy Spirit kept, they didn't leave him alone. And so as he was praying, the impression came again, and so he decided to go a second time. So a few weeks later, he goes out. He makes that two-hour trip, and as he's sharing the meal, he shares the gospel again about God's love for him. And his friend is so offended that he says, if you ever say this again to me, this message, I will kill you. And it's a threat that wasn't fake or disingenuous in any way. And so Timur returns back, and he's like, well, that's it. You know, like, door completely closed. But again, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave him alone. And so he goes to his pastor about it, deeply perturbed in his soul, and he says, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I want to share his love, God's love. I've done it twice. Maybe I'm not just like a good evangelist. I don't know. But his pastor says, hey, if, if God's calling is still there, if it's come, 
you have to trust in the one who calls you above any threat of anyone else in this world. If God's calling is there in your life, then that supersedes anything. It's far superior and sovereign to anything that man can do. And so, Timor decides to go a third time. But this time he knows he faces the risk and the threat of losing his life or being beaten up at the very least. And as he comes to his acquaintance's house, there's a gate outside and there's, there's a girl, um, which is his friend's daughter, who is playing in the dirt. And she's a young girl. And so Timur stops, like really, really nervous to knock on the gate. And so he decides, you know what? I'm going to do half-half with you, God. I'm just going to share the gospel with this girl here and then call it a day. And so he starts to share the gospel with the, the little daughter. And as she's hearing the message, she's just listening to him attentively. And then the father hears a commotion, the friend. And he grabs a shovel, and he's coming over to beat up or to kill Timur. And so Timur thinks this is the end. This is it. But when he opens the gate and he comes to him, the girl rushes to her dad and says, Abba, stop. You need to listen to what this man is saying. And the man dropped his shovel and fell to the ground crying because all her life, the little girl had been mute and she had not been able to speak. And when Timur shared the gospel to her, God opened the mouth of her. And that day, the whole family came to Christ. And this is a miraculous story of God's sovereign power when the gospel and heeding and obedience to the call results in the repentance and a miraculous turn of events for this family. And the question is, can you and I be more like Timur or are we more like Jonah? What we see from Jonah is he ran from his calling. And everyone, everyone in this room, you and I, we are running from God to some degree. What's true and what we see is that in life, there will always be a boat to Tarshish waiting at the, at the docks. We can, and what the scary truth that we see with Jonah is, is that we know that we can run from God, from being immoral and irreligious, if we delve into and, and just love and embrace this party scene, <coughs> or addictions, or ways that don't please God. But what Jonah reveals is a scary reality, is that we can still very much be wayward and run from God, while also being deeply religious and moral. And that's the message of Jonah. But we're all running from God. We run from God whether we're completely wayward with our life or whether we've been following God for years. Because in every, we have not completely surrendered over every part of our heart to the Lord. In the ways that we do not surrender to God, that's the parts where we run from him. When we don't allow God to be Lord over our finances and we are consumed by consumerism and shopping, that's us running from God in this area of our lives. When we don't allow God to be Lord over our purity in the ways that we don't watch pornography or we don't engage in sensuality or sexuality with our girlfriend or boyfriend or someone outside of our marriage, that's us running from God in the area of purity. When we, run from, when we don't allow God to be Lord of our lives in our studies or our work, when we cut corners in school on Zoom class because it's so easy to cheat now and that we're behind not going face to face, or when we cheat and, and our lie and work. That's us running from God in the ways of not submitting to the lordship of integrity. What is your Nineveh this morning? Or, or put differently, who is your Nineveh? What Jonah reveals that we'll see later in, in the next, next section is that the cost of obedience is great. There's a cost to going to Nineveh. Jonah could lose his life. But the cost of disobedience is so much greater. It affects others, and it comes at your own pearl. And so how, to what extent are you and I like Jonah? 
God's great commission to us in Matthew 28, we see this in 2019 and 20, that God calls us to make disciples of all nations. And that's the mission of our church. But how many times has God put us into situations with another person in which we have the opportunity to share Christ with them? He literally takes us there, and we run to Tarshish in that moment. In the time that we can share Christ with our neighbor who complains that we're too loud, or to our classmate that we're stuck in the bus with, or to our coworker, in those moments, why do we run and go to Tarshish instead of sharing God's word with them? And the antidote to this is to see that God is faithful. If God is faithful to Jonah in the midst of all this storm, if he pursues Jonah in the way that he has with the storm, God will be faithful to us, and he has been. And in that way, he calls us to a faithfulness of himself. Jesus, who is a better man than Jonah was, entered our history with a call from God. The call required Jesus not only to carry out the the full commandments and to obey perfectly the law, but his own unique calling came in the culmination of his death and resurrection for our sake. Jesus was tempted so many times to flee from Tarshish in the beginning of his ministry to the very end. In Matthew 4, when he was tempted in the wilderness to do the last night before he was crucified, the Garden of Gethsemane, but instead of running, Jesus said, not my will, but your will will be done. And he gave his life willingly for our sake. He died because he was faithful to his call. And for that reason, you and I are allowed to be more like Christ and less like Jonah in this way. And so what we see is that the path of disobedience is always downwards. And it alters our view of God. And it changes us so that we no longer fear him. So that's the second thought, is that the second downward spiral and the way that we can see is symptomatic of our waywardness is when we have no fear of God. We have no fear of God. So uh, Jonah 1, 4 through 10, is where we see the next part. When we enter into the storm, and there's another chiasm, right? Where So the, the storm starts, the sailors fear. That's the beginning. And then the sailors pray, and they throw the cargo overboard, and they ask Jonah a series of questions. Like they say, on whose account is this evil for? And then they ask a bunch of what questions, identity questions, like what are you, where are you from? And then it, the middle section of the chiasm is where Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, and the sailors fear great fear. And then the parallel continues, where they, they ask another, Jonah another couple of questions of what, and Jonah says, it's on my account. And then it ends when the sailors pray and throw Jonah overboard into the sea. And so at the very beginning, middle, and end, we see that the fear is a central theme of this passage and section. God hurls a wind, and this verb hurl is used several times throughout this passage. What we might think as a storm that's meant to punish Jonah in God's wrath or anger is not. It's a manifestation of God's faithfulness and his patience to an erring child, and we'll see why. It says in verse 4 that the, the ship contemplated breaking up, which is a, it's a symbol of personification. It's like when a toxic relationship is very much strained and someone threatens to break up. This is what the ship is going through. The, the storm is so rough that the ship threatens to break up. And the sailors hurl the cargo overboard. And so the connection of the sailors hurling and God hurling is the first thing that we see where there's a connection between sailors and God. And whereas Jonah acts not in a good way, there's a role reversal. The pagan sailors who are not believers of God are the, actually the ones who are acting virtuously in the scene. So Tim Keller says, a very important part about storms is that every disobedience, every act of disobedience to God, every sin results in a storm and has a storm attached to it. That's, as a distinction, 
not every storm is because of sin. But I can guarantee you that every sin, every act of disobedience that we take in this life will inevitably and invariably result in a storm. And Numbers 32, 23 says this when he says that our sin will find us out. And that's what we see with Jonah. And with Jonah and the sailors, we see that there is a stark contrast of what Jonah should do and what the sailors are doing because he's not doing it. The sailors cry out, cry out to their own pantheon of unknown gods for help. In sharp contrast to Jonah's lack of prayer. Another thing that we see in contrast is that Jonah is asleep in the stern, but the sailors are vigilant, and they're doing everything they can to battle the the storm. While Jonah is self-absorbed in his own problems, the sailors are seeking the common good for everyone on board, including this straggler who's sleeping on the ship. While the sailors are praying to their own gods, Jonah does not. While the sailors see the storm as a result of sin, Jonah fails to see that. While the sailors are open to God's calling on Jonah's life, and Jonah's not even, even open to the calling on his life. And the irony in this passage is that God sends a prophet to a pagan people in Nineveh to tell them about who God is. But in reality, the pagans here in this story are showing the prophet who God is. They outshine Jonah in every way. So looking at the sailors, when the captain comes into the bottom of the ship and finds Jonah asleep, he gives the same calling. He says, arise, call out to your God. And this harkens us back to the very beginning of chapter 1, where God says, arise, go, and call out. The very same commandment is coming to, to Jonah again, but it's coming from a pagan captain. Jonah, who is a man of God, has to be reminded to pray. The sailors, they, they experience a, lot, a, 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 role of emo, a roller coaster of emotions, and they have a lot of fear. So in the beginning, in verse 5, they're greatly afraid naturally because of the storm. But in verse 10, it becomes, their fear grows, where it says they feared a great fear in Hebrew. And at the very end, when the storm ceases, it says that they fear God. There's a right appropriation to their fear. It fears God and results in their worship of him. Well, my parents planted a church in Uzbekistan in the Muslim world. Um, they also planted a church. It was also called Harvest. And one of our church pastors when he, he, before he became a believer, he heard the gospel from my parents. And he was stuck. He didn't know what to do with the information that was, he received. Is he now to follow God and Jesus Christ, or is he to continue in his religion to follow Allah? And so, in Islam, Jesus is um, a prophet. He's seen as a good and virtuous teacher, but nothing more than that in the sense that he's not the son of God. But the Christian gospel says otherwise. So one night, um, our pastor, Navruz, was sleeping. And it's late at night, and he hears something enter into the room. So it climbs onto the bed, and thinking it's his cat, he gives it a good, friendly kick. And then he realizes it's not a cat, but it's a person. So then he thinks it's his dad, who's coming home very late from the mosque, from his prayers, and is about to apologize when he sees that the figure is actually very dark and foreboding and it starts to come onto him and choke him. At this point, he realizes that this is not his dad or a person, but this is what is a jinn, or in, in Taji we call it a demon. Navruz becomes paralyzed. Something controls his body. He can't move. He can't even speak. And so in that moment, he starts to panic. And as he's panicking, he cries out to Allah. He says, Allah, help me. And there's no answer or response. 
And then he, he's, he moves down and he says, Muhammad, help me. And again, Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, but nothing happens. And then he, out of desperation, he cries, help me, hudo, which is the Uzbek word for God. But because he had no relationship to the Father through Jesus Christ, again, nothing happens. And so finally running out of all the deities he could call for, he says, help me, Isl Masih, or help me, Jesus Christ. And at that moment, in that dark room, through the window, a ray of light came through, hit the dark figure that was on top of him, vaporized it, and he could breathe again. And it was in this amazing supernatural moment that Navruz understood that Jesus was real, and he had authority over darkness and everything wicked in this world. And so these stories are maybe received by a healthy dose of skepticism uh, as we're far removed from the mission field and our American context. But I want to invite you guys, when you, in your darkest moments, when you call upon Jesus Christ and his name, you will see clearly that he moves beyond anything this world says that's reasonable. He moves miraculously. And that's what we've seen um, with Jonah and the sailors. The sailors have this shotgun style of prayer. It's like, whoever, anyone out there, just answer us. And what they encounter is the God of the universe himself. So what can we gather from this section about ourselves? Storms, we see that God hurls at Jonah is for a purpose. God's intention is not to make Jonah's life miserable, but God's intention is to bring back Jonah to himself. Storms help reduce the power of sin over our hearts. They can wake us up to truths that we have not seen before, and it can develop our faith, develop our love for other people who are suffering with us, develop a sense of humility where we're prideful. Jonah could not see through the terror of the storm that God's work was one of mercy. There was a disconnect between Jonah's profession of faith. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear God, the, land, the Lord of the sea and dry land. And the sailor's like, what the heck? Like, you, you fear the God of the sea, but you, you're in the boat with us going to Tarshish, running from your calling? And that's what Jonah is doing. Like, he says one thing, but he's doing another. And before we label Jonah as a, as a mad hypocrite, we have to see that these inconsistencies that Jonah has are actually within us too. That we're just as inconsistent as Jonah. Like we say things that we love everyone, but our lives don't reflect that. As a church, we've seen that too long. But instead of, before we point even fingers at the church, that's for all of us. That's for me. That's for you. Like we're inconsistent in the ways that we say and we degrade other people and say, hey, this is not right, this is evil, this is bad, and which is true and it's good. But at the same time, we commit those same crimes. We condemn racism, but we are racist ourselves. We contend bigotry and prejudice and discrimination, but we ourselves harbor prejudice and discrimination. So before we can condemn other people, we have to realize that we are guilty of the very sins that we condemn. But this, this part reflects God. And we see three things about God. We see one, we see God's power through the storm. It describes everything in terms of great. And so 15 times in the book of Jonah, the word gadol, great, is used. And so great wind, great storm, there's a great fear, all of that to highlight the backdrop of God's great power. God has a power to start and stop storms. And the second thing we see is God's purpose. God's purpose was not random, but it was intentional. It was pursuant of Jonah himself. And that leads to our third thing is God pursues. And in his pursuit of of Jonah, it's not, partially it's because of his disobedience and his flight. But most importantly, in God's providence, we're attempted to doubt God's faithfulness. By faith, God pursues us, and he sends us, and he intervenes 
so that he can draw us back to himself. The third thing that we see, and before we go there, that we see that the hurling, like God hurls the wind, hurls the storm, the sailors hurl the cargo overboard, they hurl the dice for lots, and they hurl Jonah into the sea. Um, we see that when Jonah goes into a third thought, that into the deep into the sea, we have no concern for others. That's the third sign of waywardness for our lives. That when we don't follow God, we're wayward from his path, we lose concern for other people. So I want us to notice what Jonah did not do when he got on board the ship. Because that speaks as much volume as what Jonah did do. Jonah did not talk to sailors about God. He did not lead them to a discussion about this is who the God is of my forefathers who loves us and wants to save you. He fled not bringing the, the gospel to pagans in, in Nineveh. Instead, he actually ends up with pagans on the ship that he had opportunity to share God with but didn't. In the movie VeggieTales, right, with this depiction of Jonah, when the calling comes to the asparagus, um, the asparagus cries out to God in his tent, and he's like, God, you don't want me to go there. You don't know what Nineveh is like. Of course you don't, because you haven't been there. You would never go to such an evil place, nor should someone like me. They have, they should have no chance to turn. They deserve your wrath. The problem with Jonah was his hatred towards Nineveh and his dismissal and mitigation of the pagan sailors. Unless Jonah can see that in his own self, that he is wholly living because of God's mercy, he will never be able to understand God's mercy to evil people. Jonah's blissful sleep in the raging storm shows the state of this, his apathy towards other people. The sailors and Ninevites suffer because of his inaction. Jonah fled because he didn't want to work for the good of the pagans, and he wanted to work exclusively for the benefit of himself and his people. But what God shows Jonah is that you can't just think about believers, but you have to think about humanity as a whole. That there are people who are suffering. There are people who are lost who need to hear my good news. Um, in his private faith, Jonah's private faith was of no public good. And so when the sailors start to question him, when they're trying to interrogate him and see, like, what's going on, they ask questions about his purpose, his identity, his origins. And back in those days, Tim Keller says that your identity of who you are and whom you worship were two sides of the same coin. And instead of asking, who are you, another question they would ask is, whose are you? Like, so whose God are you, are, are you under and serving unconditionally? But Jonah answers in a very interesting manner. He's, he fronts, and when, usually in Hebrew literature, when there's a fronting, that means that that's the most important part of the dialogue. So he fronts and he says, I'm a Hebrew who fears the Lord. And what he does is he identifies primarily as an Israelite before he identifies as a follower of God. When we put our identity of something else before our identity as a Christian, that leads to a shallow Christian theology. When I say I'm a Democrat, Christian, or I'm a Republican Christian, when I say I'm a white Christian, a black Christian, an Asian American Christian, a Korean Christian, we front something in front of our identity as a son or daughter of God. And what that leads to is this great pandemic across our nation, across the world, where Christians can be racist, can be greedy, because it's not Christ's love that compels them, but their own identity that they place first. There's a disconnect 
between Jonah saying that I fear the Lord and what he really actually believes. Um, some of our youth students, right, they're learning how to drive, or they've just gotten a driver's license, so congratulations. Um, but as you're learning how to drive, and for many of our experienced drivers, you'll learn that as you're driving down the road, on the highway especially, maybe on 408, you're trying to merge lanes, and you receive a very, very un- not unkind honk from the person behind you because you've slightly merged into a lane, and they're on your blind spot. So blind spots are when you can't see what's around you, diagonally behind you, because it's not captured by your side mirrors or your rearview mirrors, and so you have to like, physically look behind you. And the issue with that is that it can lead to an accident. But the thing is, is that when you have a bigger vehicle, you have bigger blind spots. And the same is with our Christian faith and with Jonah. Like Jonah is a big guy on a big mission, a big dude. But the bigger he is in terms of his faith and responsibility over the nation of Israel, the bigger his blind spot was. His pride and his arrogance led him to pushing away the other by focusing on their strangeness and reducing them to dehumanized characteristics. What we see, the storm gets worse. So if we depart from that a little bit, just to come back to it, the storm gets worse. It grows more and more tempestuous, which is a great SAT word. But what it says in the Hebrew is that the storm walks and storms. And it shows a progression, and it's getting worse. And so Jonah then has a change of heart. It's when he sees the imminent threat that's facing to the lives of the sailors that he actually, for once, acts virtuously for the first time. Jonah, as they're asking him, what can we do to calm the sea? Jonah says, throw me overboard. And that's in a concern for saving the lives of the people around him. This is what a reflection of God's true love for us, his agape love for you and I. What marks love is that it is self-sacrificing. It's substitutionary. And what Jonah says is that I will take the full wrath of the waves so that you don't have to. True love meets the needs of the ones you love no matter what the cost. And maybe marriages across the U.S. landscape might not reflect that very well today, but if you're a parent, you know that very full and well, that even though your child is very, very unthankful and they throw a fit, even when you've provided so much for them and you love them, no matter what the cost, you're committed to them. And in this way, it's a reflection of God's love for us. The sailors, after the storm ceases, what they do is they convert their fear into the right fear, appropriate fear to God. And they have a change of heart. Seeing Jonah's witness to his sacrifice and seeing the great power of God and how God has stilled the storm, and even despite Jonah's bad witness, they have a change of heart, and they offer a sacrifice to God and worship to him. And it begs the question, like, is this, is, this sacri- or is this worship that they offer to God, is it like a spur of the moment, kind of like um, when you're riding on the airplane and there's turbulence, you're like, oh my God, um, save me. Is it that kind of moment for the sailors? Or is it genuine? In this show, Rick and Morty, um, Rick is this crazy, deranged uh, scientist, and he has a grandson, Morty, and they go on these sci-fi space adventures. In one se- in episode, uh, there's a dealing with alternate realities and Schrodinger's cats. And so they have these collars of technology placed upon them so that they can stay in their fixed reality. And in this scene of, series of events, um, they're floating through space, Rick and Morty are, and Morty loses his collar, and so he's like, going to float away into eternity in nothingness. And so what, what Rick does is he takes his collar off and puts it on his grandson Morty and says, it's okay, like, I accept this fate. You go on, live a good life. And so Mo- Rick is left floating through space, um, condemned to his own actions. 
But then he sees his, his own collar flowing through space. And so he says, like, oh, my gosh, I have a change of heart. And he starts praying to God. He says, oh, sweet Lord Jesus, oh, please, God, please have mercy upon me. And if there's a hell, please be merciful to me. But what's funny because is that throughout the whole show, Rick has a very, very obtuse relationship with God. He hates God and condemns him all the time as a mean and vengeful man. But in the moment that his, his life is at risk, he calls out to God. And so he grabs the collar when he gets to it. And then he fixes it in a, in a really quickly, and he puts it back on himself. And he says, ha, screw you, God, not today, in a, in a, in a lot worse way, he says that. But the question is, for, for, as we compare the sailors to Rick, is what are we like in the face of storms? We all have this storm of COVID, like overarching all of us. And in this umbrella of COVID storm, we have our mini storms, right? Storms of financial issues, storms of marriage, storms of parenting and difficult children, storms of careers and job loss, storms of our own health. But in those storms, do we approach these storms as Rick did, praying in an attempt to manipulate God to get us out of it or to gain something from it, or do we approach storms as the sailors did, that they worshiped God for his greatness, for who he was, not for something that he could give them? And so it would be remiss of us if we went through an entire storm that God leads us to, and not to see God's purposeful pursuit of us. God's trying to teach us something in each storm. And if we come through a storm not seeing what God is doing and what he wants to do to change us, then that storm almost has gone to waste. God's purposeful pursuit is for Jonah and and as well as the sailors. And through Jonah's mishaps, God brings a group of sailors to himself. Jonah, on the other hand, just in his selfish self-preservation is like the elves in the Lord of the Rings. So if you've read the books or watched the movies, the elves are a special race. Um, there's a guy named Legolas whom many people here have had like a crush on uh, in the early 2000s. But the elves are special because they're immortal and they're imbued and endowed with a sense of eternality. They cannot die unless they are killed in battle or they suffer from disease. And if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, like, you can correct me after this. But, um, and so the elves, because of that, they they separate themselves from the mortals, from the men and the dwarves. And so when the evil forces converge upon Middle-earth to overtake the world, the elves don't want to help. They become Switzerland. They're like, we're not going to help in this way because they, their life is so much more valuable because there's, there's so much more cost to it. And Jonah acts like the elves in Lord of the Rings, where he sees that my life is so much of worth value compared to his pagan sailors, so I don't mind putting them at risk so that I can achieve what I want. That's what happens when we are wayward from God that we have a lack of concern for other people. What they describe this as is a sense of tribalism, that as humans we are all hardwired to define ourselves by a we, but by that we automatically exclude a they. So as we define ourselves as a we, we are exclusive. And what happens is we become centered around people that we exclude. That becomes our identity. When we denounce and blame and despise other people for their race or their class or religion or sexuality or viewpoint, we start feeling better about ourselves, about our group, about our identity. And you don't have to look very far to see that the American church suffers with this and has suffered with it in COVID. COVID exposes many things. And one of the things that exposed is the church's horrific state in which we have a sense of tribalism towards other people. Instead of being pursuance of other people, of the pagan sailors of our day, we're like Jonah. We think about ourselves, 
we have self-preservation first and foremost in mind, and we don't think about other people. The American church was founded upon this. There's a horrific centuries and years upon which the church in America has built upon this pro-slavery theology, where pastors and churches back in the day in the antebellum South would actually come up with points and sermons and plans about how God has justified the use of their slaves for their personal prosperity. And it's amazing and astounding. And it's actually not that far removed from where we are today. Because some of you guys know downtown in Orlando, um, at Colonial and Orange Blossom Trail, it wasn't 100 years ago before we were hanging and lynching July Perry from the, the streetlights of that intersection. And what happens a lot is and Florida has been the most has the most lynchings per square capita. And a lot of those lynchings in which we have lynched black African-American men and women is that not only are the sheriffs and the police force and government complicit, but this what often happens on church grounds because there's a public space for people to come. And I wonder for us today, we can denounce this evil here in the 21st century, but if you transported us back to the 20th century, not even 100 years ago, in the context where it was the majority dominant view to see black people as inferior and not human, would we say anything, would we speak out in justice and fight against it? Because it's easy to fight behind a screen, but when it comes to a cost of our own lives and maybe being lynched alongside our African-American brothers and sisters, when, it, when the rubber meets the road, would we actually fight for their, for their lives and for their freedom? I don't know. I don't know if you and I can do that. That's the reality of what things are. Pursuing justice and condemning racism in our country is good. But at the same time, like, to what extent do we actually go to fight for it as God has called us to? To what extent do we love the people around us in which God has called us to? And what Jonah shows is that he had a lack of concern for the people around him in the ways that he did not care for their danger, but most importantly, he did not care for their spiritual danger. He did not share the gospel with them. To close, I just want to connect this last thought with our, our lives. In what ways has this, the storms around us, do they expose a lack of concern for other people? What makes you and I Christian, if we're believers, is not our love for Jesus. We've turned things around, upside down. What makes us Christian is Jesus' love for us. We've made this into a pa- an, an act of like, I achieve this. I achieve this because I'm a believer, and therefore that makes me entitled. But what actually, when we understand the depths of the gospel and God's mercy, it's not anything that you and I have done. It's not our religious good works that could build us up to this moment where we're above everyone in morality. But it's precisely because we are horrible people like the Ninevites that we deserved God's wrath, but instead we received his mercy, and it boggles our minds. The storm itself is God's mercy. And it's hard for us to see it in the moments, but it's true. And what John Piper says is that the great danger to sin is that we are exposed to the world of our sin. But he says, he continues and says that the greatest danger of our sin is when we're not caught and exposed. In Romans 1, in the fashion in which God allows us and he gives us up to our own desires, to our own wickedness, If God was not merciful, Jonah would have made it to Tarshish. 
and who have lived a life of worldly fullness and not ever experienced the depth of God's mercy. It was God's mercy that interrupted his life so he could experience God's mercy to the fullest. And that's the same for you and I. And the eye of every hurricane and every tornado is a calm. At the heart of every storm, it's God's compassionate and pursuing love for us. And just to conclude, Jonah himself was a prophet. He was a wayward guy. And we can condemn him. But before we do, we have to identify that we are Jonah. But there is someone who is not like us in this way. And his name was Jesus. And he was a son of God who came to this world 2,000 years ago. And where Jonah failed to obey the calling, Jesus did. Jonah selfishly wished for a death to escape his discomfort and to avoid seeing his enemies enjoy God's mercy. But Jesus, in quiet obedience, willfully and of his own volition, endured torture and death intended for us to save his enemies from hell. Jonah points to a greater prophet, a greater preacher, and a greater savior. Jonah did not have the power to forgive sins or to extend mercy, but Jesus did, and he does to us. And what it shows is that when Jesus died on the cross for us, for our sake, so that we would not bear the storm of God's divine wrath, Jesus did so because of his love and his mercy for you and I. A God who substitutes himself for you and suffers so that you may go free is a God who is worthy of our trust. A God who suffers pain and injustice and death for your sake is a God who is worthy of worship. Jesus endured the greatest storm that the world has ever seen. The storm of divine justice and judgment poured out on evil and sin to conquer it for once and for all. And he died willingly for you and I. And 1 John ends with this. In 3, 16 and 18, it says, This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So I want to invite us to pray as, as we close in this time. As we come before God's table in communion, this is an opportunity for us to be reminded of God's loving kindness and mercy. The cup and the bread represents God's wrath that was poured out onto his own son, who suffered and bled and died and had his body broken and beaten for you and I so that we can partake in the table. The whole table, this, this, this element that we take together is a symbol of God's mercy for us. If God could show mercy to the most heinous civilization that, of the ancient Near East, then surely God can have mercy upon you and I, no matter what we have done. Whatever ways that we have run wayward from God, it's not bigger than God's mercy. Your sin may be great, but God's, God's mercy is greater. So let's pray. Let's come. Let's reflect. And then as we're ready, um, we'll go into communion.